for every need in Christ, and that this provision comes from your sovereign grace, that you have a plan for all of our lives, and that this plan is rooted into the very fabric of the universe. And we pray that your Holy Spirit, who helped construct the universe around us, who helps superintend its processes day after day, who also reveal Christ to our hearts, will open our hearts to your word tonight. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Tonight we're going to sort of summarize what we've done, and uh, hopefully if I forgot the track number on the CD that I want to do, but um, we'll see if it works tonight. Um, Let's go back to what we have done over the last year and um, point out that, once again, last because tonight will be our last time for a while, um, at least until the fall when we start again, we have worked through these events. This carries us up basically through the end of the book of Judges. So... That part of the Old Testament hopefully is familiar, and the key parts of that Old Testament section are clear. And the truths that are embedded in that Old Testament section are clear. That we know that there's a creator-creature distinction, that we know that suffering and sorrow, death and sickness has a cause. We know that God has initiated a plan And we want to, tonight, think about some of the details of that. So it's going to be kind of an application time. Um, When we talk about the flow of history, which is what we're talking about here, we we came this fall, this past fall, to the call of Abraham. When we did that, we said that that started a process of disruption in civilization. That up until that time, God had revealed himself within the cultures to different peoples, different ways. That the people who had formed what we call civilization, the descendants of Noah, uh, went out and explored the planet, very carefully mapped it, and uh, started all the world civilizations within 100 to 200 years. didn't take thousands of years. Um, man hit the earth after the flood running so that engineering and technology immediately started. Um, there was no gradual transition, and it was sudden, and it was catastrophic onslaught, so to speak, of something new, civilization in, in its form. Then we said, and if we turn back to Genesis 10, we want to review again um, what, what went on there, or Genesis 11, with the Tower of Babel that gave rise to this Abraham thing. Because we're looking at macro-scale events. We're looking at things that characterize history as a whole. And we want to learn what the Spirit has to say through the Scriptures about that which we take for granted. And you'll remember in Genesis chapter 11, verse 4. You must remember this. This is a classic text. It characterizes the Spirit of the cosmos, the Spirit around us. 
And it was this spirit that must be destroyed. It will be destroyed. And it's a very painful destruction because it involves, it's the, the, the conflict between the Holy Spirit and this spirit starts inside each one of us in our hearts because our flesh um, sucks this up just like a vacuum cleaner. And it's tough because it gets rooted in us. And God says it's going to be uprooted. And the spirit of verse 4, where it says, Come and let us build for ourselves a city whose tower will reach into heaven. Let us make for ourselves a name, lest we be scattered abroad. Remember we said that that is an, a very frank acknowledgement of the autonomous, prideful nature of man. What are some things verse 4 implies? So we don't just leave it there in the text as some sort of dead literature. What, what active uh, uh, living consequences come out of verse 4? Well, some of them are that whatever meaning there is, whatever good and evil there is to be defined, is going to be rooted in whom? This text says the final authority is man. That's what that claim is. Verse 4 is a claim that man is the final court of appeal. Now notice something interesting about that. That implies that inerrancy. You know, people say, is the Bible inerrant? I don't believe the Bible's inerrant. Well, verse 4 implies that man is inerrant. You see, the debate isn't over inerrancy or authority, of, or authority per se. The debate is over where you locate it. It's either located in man or it's located in God. But it can't be located any other place. So verse 4 is an is a, a unabashed, clear statement of the claim that man has authority. Then we said in chapter 12, when Abraham was called out, it's no accident that verse 2 uses that very same noun, name, and who here is defining name? Is it man or is it God? Now it's God that has the final name. I will make of you, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great. So now is the conflict. And what we have done is try to show the flow of God's revelation and history in these events because from the point of the call of Abraham down is the struggle between these two spirits. The spirit of autonomy and God's intrusion. From this point on, from the call of Abraham on in the flow of history, the Holy Spirit and the plan of salvation and evangelism and missions and all other things are interferences into an order that has already been pre-established. In other words, the gospel is an interference. By ver chapter 11 sets up civilization in its wrong sense. And because civilization is set up in its wrong sense, then everything the Holy Spirit does to call people to Christ is an interference, is an interruption. This theme is carried forward in all great epics of our modern time. How many um, science fiction uh, epics have you seen where the alien effect, the extraterrestrial, is always evil? You ever notice that? Every single one of these things, the extraterrestrial effect is always evil. That which comes down from heaven is evil. 
Now, isn't it interesting that in the biblical symbology, what comes down from heaven but God's blessings? What comes down is from God. What comes up from below is evil. Hell is always looked upon as this earth, not the external space. It's not the extraterrestrial. It's this earth where the conflict is. So, in an interesting way, as, as late as these last few weeks, when we have had on TV and in the movies, we've had these epics. It's the same theme. Don't disturb this civilization. We have built our towers. We have built this, and we don't want interference. And it's there in the very structure of these epics. It's precisely the other way, of course, because in the final analysis, who is it that's going to come from heaven and invade this planet? He who comes on the white horse. And who gathers together to fight against the king who comes on the white horse from outer space? It is the kings of the earth that gather together to fight against him who sits on the, fight, on the throne. So the space of the stories are exactly wrong. It's nice because when somebody is exactly wrong, they're useful. If someone is consistently wrong, it's great because you always do opposite to them and you'll always be right. It's called negative genius. And it's when people are mishy-mashy both ways that it's use, they're kind of useless. But, you know, either be consistently right or be consistently wrong. Both are very fruitful positions. All right, as we go into chapter 12, now we see the promises. And we've seen how many promises are included in the call of Abraham. What we're doing is just warming up on this for an application I'm going to make here in a few minutes. I'm just trying to review a little bit. What are the three big things God is going to promise first? Land, seed, and a worldwide blessing. That's the story of the Old Testament. What has God promised? What has he done here in the conquest and settlement? What is he attempting to do? He's attempting to give them the land. In the chapter which we didn't cover, we're starting to see the giving of something else here. Up here, the Exodus was a, his son has come into existence, the seed is there, but then the concept of the seed narrows until it becomes centered upon the king, the anointed king, the Messianic king. And that's what we missed this one, we'll pick that up in the fall. So, the concept of the seed, first Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the twelve tribes, and then the concept of the seed begins to narrow down and narrow down and narrow down to the Messiah who shall come. Looking at this flow of history, we see the Exodus event as a picture of what great doctrine? The doctrine of salvation. So by looking at the Exodus story, we see what real salvation, authentic salvation looks like. And we looked at that, we said, what was the element that we noticed very strongly in the Exodus as the sine qua non of that salvation? It wasn't by power, it wasn't by... Uh, Moses taking up arms against the Egyptians. It wasn't an armed revolt. There were no armies involved except Pharaoh's and they drowned. They became a navy. So the, the, the uh, human works was gone. Now, on the other side of the coin, there wasn't peaceful negotiation either. It wasn't a result of the United Nations involved sitting down for negotiations and working out a resolution to, to resolve this conflict. So it was neither the warrior nor the peacemaker. It was neither side of the works of men. It was a catastrophic salvation. And it was centered in what element? What characterizes the exodus for that which was the final separator 
What finally separated those who were saved in the Exodus from those who lost their homes and their families, parts of their families? It was the blood on the door, the blood atonement. So very prominently, early on in the Old Testament, it's clear, and don't let anybody dissuade you, this is not a Christian interpretation. It's there in the story. This is a Jewish story. And at the very heart of this Jewish origin of the nation is blood atonement. And it's precisely blood atonement that separates the damned from the saved. So the gospel, when it comes appears in the New Testament, it's not something new. It's just a reiteration of the same theme we saw over here in the book of Exodus. So can't blame the New Testament for this theme. It's embedded earlier in this Old Testament text. And we said, furthermore, that the design of this nation... Remember the Exodus was, I, have, I will deliver you, Israel, because of the promises I made to whom? And it goes over, remember we said a whole series of promises in the book of Exodus. I have promised Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, because I have made my promises to them, so you are saved. Which leads us then to something that we stated this, uh, this time, this fall and spring, a point that we've made about the Bible, we want to make this again and again. What is true in the scriptures about God's relationship with man that is not found in any other religion. What is absolutely unique to biblical faith. Anybody remember that? God makes a covenant. So the call of Abraham is another example of a contractual relationship. Can't say that enough. Because in some of the applications we want to make tonight, we're going to use this truth. Because I want to demonstrate tonight how to take all this stuff and apply it. The contractual relationship. Why does the Bible, do you think, why have we said over and over, what's so important about the Abrahamic contract, the Noahic contract, the Sinaitic contract. We've got to go to the Davidic contract, which we didn't do yet, but it's always a contract. We come to the communion at the Last Supper, and Jesus says this cup is the cup of the what? The new contract. So we've got contract after contract after contract after contract. Why is the Bible so insistent upon this contractual structure that is, that is, is the Scriptures? In fact, we remember it because what is the title of the two parts of the Bible? The old and new Actually, testaments is a contract. So the Bible is fundamentally a contractual document. Okay, what does a contract do? Why do two people enter into a contract? What do you have with the contract that you don't have without a contract? Now we said a, a measuring device for behavior. People agree in the contract to terms. What do the terms describe? the character of the relationship. And it's there as a witness. So what you have with a contract is something made here, it's a witness, and the parties go their separate ways and do their living, and we, we history unfolds, but we always now have standing over history, we have this contract. So no matter what happens down here in the details, we're always looking at the terms of the contract. It becomes a measuring tool. You see how powerful this is? See how much this is? None of the religions have this. Hinduism don't, doesn't know about a contract. Buddhism doesn't have contracts. Confucius doesn't have contracts. Confucius said, I don't even know anything about heaven. 
can be argued that Confucius was an atheist. Buddhist was. So the point is that the, uh, the, the whole thing is that the Bible alone has a God who makes the contracts. Because although Albright said the Hebrews are the only people that make contracts with their God, actually God made contracts with them. Now, what does this imply? It implies that God does what? He speaks. You can't have a contract by one party imagining that somebody said something. A contract implies a speaking God. So God speaks. Now, if the Bible then is unique in the fact that it has a contractual structure, what also now do we know that's unique in the Scriptures? A God who speaks. And not only who speaks, but He speaks in, throughout over the centuries of time in a consistent way. Because if He didn't speak consistently, it would be revealed by shortcomings in the contract. The contract, once made, stays. So, if God speaks in this century, the next century, the third century, the fifth century, the eighth century, all those words have to fit together. So, we have a coherent plan of God. That's not anywhere else. Okay, so we have the contractual nature. We say that this grew out of God's plan. We also said, as we came down to the sanctification issue that we just got through studying, in sanctification, what are we as individuals going on? What, what's happening? What big thing? It, we always think of sanctification as some little thing. Okay? This is some individual, personal thing. But in sanctification, we said it's got to be thought of in the big picture. And in the big picture, what is happening? Go back to the conquest and settlement. Think of the individual soldier marching around Jericho. Think of the individual sh soldier on that day in the Valley of Ayalon when the sun stood still. Now he's wondering what all is going on in his life, but he's part of a bigger picture. What's our bigger picture when we think of sanctification? Sanctification is the solution to the problem that everybody's concerned with. What's the problem everybody's fussing about? The problem of evil aren't they? So everybody says, oh, this is so terrible. It's people get angry at God for things that happen. Why, I read somewhere where some guy said, if there's a God, when I get to see Him, I'm going to punch Him in the face. <laughs> Good luck. Um, in that situation, you have profound anger over things that go wrong. Now, the sanctification that we're having, our little pieces in our lives, where God is doing this, He is separating good from evil. That's the meaning of sanctification. It's not having an experience. There's experience there, but that's not the purpose of it all. The purpose is every time we have a victory in our Christian life, we are sealing the doom of the world. Because every victory that we have in our Christian life advances God's plan and gets ever closer to the time when all evil will be removed. So, if we're angry and fussing about evil, the best thing to do is do what? Follow his plan, because his plan is on schedule and keep with the program. It will be taken care of. The hard way or the easy way, but it will be taken care of. So, sanctification is linked to very serious business. It's not just a personal, private thing. Okay, now that's the big picture. So what I want to do now is illustrate this by let's let's 
be a, a solution shop here and start looking at an individual. We'll leave them hypothetical. And let's say we have a situation and we can project ourselves in the middle of this and we want to look at slow motion of what goes on in our hearts because I believe it happens so rapidly in a, on a trial and a pressure situation that we're hardly aware of it. It probably happens within fractions of seconds. But we're going to sp spread out and slow down the time clock to this tonight so that what normally happens in your mind and your heart in split seconds is going to take 5 to 10 to 15 minutes. Let's say this, this person has a tremendous trial and adversity here, big pressure crunch. Now, in that situation, let's look at it from the standpoint first. Forget everything we've learned from the Scriptures. And let's try, in the spirit of the Tower of Babel, that I will make a name for myself and I'm going to solve this problem. So let's start with that mentality. We'll say this is the mentality of the pagan flesh. Now, what are going to be some responses from that perspective? Let's start there. Forget the Bible. Forget Jesus. Forget salvation. For just start with the flesh. Now, how we're all trained in this because it comes naturally to our fallen natures that are unnatural. What are going to be some responses to this? Okay. I'm a victim. I'm, it's, hey, I'm a victim. I'm getting stepped on. Which leads you, once you get that, that point, now think about what's happened here. Once you've said that, now this sounds very practical, you know, and it doesn't sound like it's all deep. What has profoundly happened the moment you said that? Let's think about the implications of that. Once we said we are a victim, what have we said about ourselves, evil, and God? When I am a victim, now many times a person can be a victim. Hey, we understand that, but you know what we're talking about. We're talking about when they're not a victim and they're claiming to be one. Okay, in that situation, what are we confessing about evil in ourselves? We're either saying that we, we have no connection with all this stuff that's going on. We're innocent victims. Isn't that the kind of the adjective that's implied here? Not just a victim, but we're an innocent victim. What thereby have we denied? We're fundamentally, at that point, denying responsibility. We're fundamentally separating ourselves from the complete issue of the evil, that all this stuff that goes on is totally unrelated to me. Okay, so that's what we're saying. So what, what I'm trying to say to, to you tonight, and when, when we look at this framework business, is that these little statements like this are tips of icebergs. And what we want to do is we want to go down and see the rest of the iceberg that's underneath that apparently innocent little statement. It involves an entire frame of reference. And that's why it's so persistent. That's why it's so hard to go against it. And that's why it's so difficult to root these out of our hearts. Because we have a nerve system in our body, in our brain, and we learn more and more about it,
that our brain accommodates itself. It's like a computer that builds circuits to compute the way we want to compute. It's as though you had a, instead of a, a, a desktop or a laptop computer, you had something that was flexible. And if you wanted 2 plus 2 to be 5, after you did it enough times, that sucker would produce 2 plus 2 is 5. It would program itself to do what you wanted it to do. And you see, that's what apparently is going on in our flesh, and that's why the Bible keeps talking about the flesh. Because every time we do something, we are training it. This isn't foreign. What does an athlete do to get better? By repetition, he goes over it and over it and over it and over it. Why? So it becomes automatic. So it becomes reflex action. Well, now, if an athlete does that, let's think about the implications of how we're made. That means when we sin and we engage in these thought patterns, what are we doing? We're training our flesh to be very efficient computers doing all that. We speed up the program every time we practice. It becomes ever so easy the next time. And that's the subtlety of what's going on. So here's, mis this, here's the victim. And the victim is already being programmed that evil is out here and evil is unrelated to anything I've done. And now let's push that one back further. What does that statement say about God? The diagram that I've shown you time and time again, there's only two views of evil. What are they? Either it started because of the creature, or it's always been there and it's God's fault. He's part of it. In fact, he's evil too. So once the statement is made, you see kind of tracks. It's like a, it's like a vacuum cleaner that starts to suck up all this stuff. And it becomes a vehicle for loading up the flesh with all kinds of pagan thought. Okay, let's, uh, let's go with something else. What would be another reaction that we can have in the energy of the flesh faced with this kind of a thing? After we meditate on that truth for a while and get totally depressed, what happens next? Anger, frustration, and you get, you get this tremendous emotional buildup. We'll call it emotional noise turbulence as a result of this. And by the way, this is interesting in itself because why does this happen? If we really are victims and the universe really is abnormal, uh, normally evil and we can't help it, if that's really the case, why are we so upset about it? You know? What does the upsettingness betray about what we've said? What does that show you? about starting points, presuppositions in the Bible, in Romans 1. What does it show you about the fact that when we say no man is an atheist, what does that say? It's saying we know very well in our conscience that this whole thing smacks of evil. So here we are now torn between a false viewpoint in a brain that's been created by God. And there's something in the program that doesn't like that. So it, the program says, we're victim. But still, that's not right. So there's, there's the conscience working. In spite of the fact that intellectually, in all the ways we've denied basically the authority of God, we're accepting the presupposition that he's a meaning, if he exists, and that we're a victim. All right, we go into this emotional noise stage, and... Now, we said that there's two tendencies that we can respond with.
out of this. We can respond in one direction or another direction. What are the choices? What some people in some situations are going to respond by doing what? They're going to respond by going out and tying one on or doing something with drugs or something else, and this is the licentious approach. Okay? If that happens, if the licentious approach is the approach that's used, what are some tools that people use to, to do, and what are they doing? In all this licentiousness, they're trying to cope with this emotional noise. What are they doing? What, what's the practical word for this? We said it's basically anesthetizing the pain of the emotional noise. And we take various anesthesias. Some people just love to take pills. Hey, they live for the pill. Other people take drugs. Other people go out and party. Other people go out and do all kinds of things. So it depends. I mean, everybody has their variety. But at the bottom, they're all the same. They're just varieties of the same, same species. And that is the licentious approach. Or the person can say, I'm going to go to a self-improvement class and I'm going to go through certain techniques, power techniques, and I'm going to learn all these things and that's going to solve my problem. And that's legalism. So that's the, that's the diagram of the flesh. Now all this, in fact, may happen very rapidly. In the course of a day, you can walk into a problem and bam! Within a fraction of a second, you'll be sucked up into this. And, and it's scary because you almost don't have time to reflect on what is going on until after you realize you're way out of it. You know, what? Well, how did I get out here so fast? Who greased my slide today? So, so that's, that's the situation that we want to slow down. Now let's look at this, the other situation here. Let's, let's take the same situation, same kind of situ pressure situation. Okay? Now, this person, Cyclops, <laughs> um, this person starts with the authority of Scripture and remembers that God is there. There's many, many different pathways. In fact, remember back last year, we, we spoke of 11 different reasons why there's suffering in the Christian life. I don't know whether you recall those, but we said that all evil, of course, is due to the fall. said some suffering is due to self-induced misery, and that's because we rebel, further adding to the weight of the fall. Uh, we, there's all kinds of other reasons in there. There's, there's reasons for undeserved suffering because sometimes God calls us to suffer, to witness for Him, sometimes to unbelievers, sometimes to believers, sometimes to angels. So there, we figured uh, there are 11 different, different reasons. We won't go into all those tonight. But if you visualize 11 different reasons, I figured out last night, if you took all the combinations of 11, you come out to about 38 million. Something like that. So, there's 38 million possible reasons. If, if we have limited it just to 11, there's, there's all kinds of ways. You know, one, and one and two, and one and five, and seven and eight, and 11 and 10, and so on. And you put them all together, and you come out with figures in the millions here. So, can we fathom, if there's millions and millions of different reasons, 
We can't sit here, contemplate this thing, and say, oh yes, well, it's reasons one, two, and eight. Thank you, God. We can't do that because we don't have that insight. But what do we have that enables us to function? What do we go back to? We go back to the, His character. And how do we know His character? Because of our ups and downs in our emotional life? Well, God blessed me here and He had a problem over here. I can't build my response to a pressure situation on the basis of my personal experience. Give me a break. That's why we have the book. Because we have centuries of experience. And viewed in the standpoint of the centuries of experience under a contractual agreement where God's behavior has been observed and He said He was going to send a seed of Abraham and it was going to come out of the town of Bethlehem and it was going to, He was going to become the Savior of the world and He was going to do this and Israel was going to have the promised land and we were going to have all these things and King David's house would be preserved forever and all the other king dynasties would go away and the tribal Levi would preserve its name and everybody walks around with jeans with Levi on the back today. So we have all these promises that God has stayed loyal to his contract. Now that gives me the assurance and it's independent of my experience. That's what's so nice about this. In other words, here's what's happening in the process. We are enveloping all this stuff out here Instead of reacting, remember that the flesh tries to react this way. That's a direct approach. But what are we doing? We're building a grid that totally envelops that and handling it within the framework of Scripture. Now we understand that I don't know exactly what God's doing in this situation, but I know He has sufficient reasons. I can trust His character because of these things. What also have we learned this, this fall and spring about what he's doing and can do? Let's, let's think about some of the things we just went through with the conquest and settlement. What, what happened when Joshua was deceived, entered into a contractual agreement with a group of phonies, deceivers, and wound up on the short end of a contract? And he honored that contract. What do we learn about God's character? when we get ourselves in a jam, but it, it's in a righteous way. It wasn't our fault in that situation. And we're not going to stray from the path. He stopped the sun and the moon. And we have a right in that same situation to pray to the God of the Valley of Ayalon. You stopped the sun and the moon on behalf of Joshua when he was deceived. And he got himself into this big mess. He signed a contract. He didn't really understand what he was doing but he was going to honor the, his word and it was going to stay. And what did you do? You came through. So here's what I mean about enveloping the system. God is in control of this, but it's not enough to say God is in control of it. It has to come out of our faith. And it takes time. So the only way you can do this is, is visualize like an athlete. Before an athlete learns a particular exercise to do or a particular repetition, he's got to piece it together in his head. And then he may do it a thousand times, and on the 1,256th time, it's starting to go auto. But it doesn't go automatically all at once. He has to think about it and think about it and think about it and repeat it and repeat it and repeat it, and then it gradually gets automatic. Well, it's the same thing here. This 
theology doesn't come automatically. It doesn't come automatically for anybody. We have to think about it and take time to do it. And then it speeds up, but only with practice. And that's that growth thing that we were talking about. So all what we've learned, all this framework, all these doctrines, are basically to handle these kinds of situations so that we don't have to rely on our personal experience. It's not that personal experience is bad. Don't get me wrong. All I'm saying is that it's too flimsy a foundation to cope with life. Because sooner or later, you're going to get something that will blow you away because it's so much bigger than anything you've ever seen before in your personal life. It's incomprehensible. You ha your family has no, uh, no experience in dealing with this. You've never been taught how to deal with this situation. You've never seen this kind of situation before. And oh, lo and behold, here you are, right in the middle of it. Now what do you do? Well, what, do you, what happens to personal experience? It goes away. You haven't got any precedence in your personal experience to cope with the situation. So that's when you realize, I can't cope with the situation. I have to get the big picture. So I'm going to go back to the big picture. And I'm going to remember, if nothing else, one exercise to do this when you can't do anything else, because remember, to, to respond to this by faith, you have to be convinced it's true. And you can't be convinced it's true until you work with it. You can't just say this like it's some abracadabra formula. It won't work because in your heart of hearts, you're not convinced of it. And whatsoever is not of faith is sin. So we have to work with it until we get to that magic rest in our hearts that, yes, this is true after all. Now, one way to start, and for every hundred Christians, there'll be 282 different ways of starting. But here's just a suggestion. One way of recalling this material and the whole sweep of Scripture is to go back to the character of God and think through the most elementary, basic truths we know about Him. Okay, what do we know about Him? What are some characteristics that we've studied for the last year and a half? God is sovereign. So what does that tell us? And you can quote scriptures. I mean, he works all things after the counsel of his will. Pick a couple of verses for these. So it's the verses, not the diagram that's doing this. So, okay, God is sovereign. And you have to force yourself to think, force yourself to, to get back to the fact that God is sovereign here. Now, who's in charge? It's obvious I'm not. So God is sovereign. What's another characteristic that we've said? Okay, God is omniscient. Now, how does that comfort me? That comforts me because I know that he knows. And I know that he knows a lot more than I do about the situation. And therefore, I don't know everything, but I know he does. And more importantly, if he's omniscient, what does that guarantee? That if this situation looks like a puzzle, and it's totally incomprehensible, by knowing that God is omniscient, it means there's rationality here. There is an order, there is a rhyme, and there is a reason for this. And that our heart demands, because our hearts are made to worship that kind of a God. Our hearts can't rest, can't really rest, in the conclusion of the modern man, who says that there ultimately is no purpose, and ultimately all is irrational. Your heart can't rest in that stuff. Just kidding yourself. What else can we go back to God's character with? What was that? 
holy. And what does that encourage us? How does that encourage us? That encourages us several th ways. It says that whatever we're going to deal with here, it's going to be in a righteous way. And that's heartwarming to know. Because if it's going to be dealt in a righteous, holy way, there's nothing to be ashamed of. So contemplating his holiness, at first, is terrifying because we know we're sinners. So that drives us to the cross, and drives us to appropriating the blood of Jesus Christ, cleanses us from all sin, and then we can rest in his holiness. Then we don't have to be ashamed. Now, society may knock us. Society may pull you apart. People may talk behind your back. Well, it's too bad, but people do that. But they're just little people. And you, you're charged with living your life before the Lord, and they, they're not going to answer for your life. You're going to answer for your life. I'm going to answer for mine. And eighty four other people aren't involved in this thing here. So holiness gives us that sense. What else? God is love. And it's a love that is not fragile like human love. Remember we said the problem with human love is what? That you can only love once you're secure. Because if you're insecure, your defense, your self-defense is a lot more important given to somebody else. So if you're insecure, you can't love. No insecure person can basically love anything. The only people that can love are people that are fundamentally secure. Because they're unthreatened. Loving makes you vulnerable. And if you feel insecure, you don't want to be vulnerable. So we go on. What are some other things? We're tired. God is omnipotent. Never gets tired. This phony stability. We try to root it in the government. We try to root it in traditions. We try to root it into our families. But come on, we all know that finally later on there's going to be changes and breaks. It's the only truly unchanging person is God. He has to be the reference point. Every other reference point drifts. Okay, I think we've done this enough to, see, to, to go through and see that what we're doing here, as we started out when we started this framework, is what, this is what a process we call strategic envelopment. It's got to be by faith. It's not a gimmick. It can only come from our hearts when we're convinced this whole thing that we talked about is true. If God isn't the one who set forth that rainbow out there after it rains, then that rainbow literally is not his signature in the clouds, then we don't really trust him. We can't. But if we do know that the same God that puts the rainbow in the cloud is the same God that kept the sun standing in the sky and the moon, over the valley of Ayalon for up to 18 hours or 20 hours to keep believers in the light while they were doing battle, then I think I can trust him. Looking at him through things like this, what he has done. Now, one of the ways that our heart is strengthened in this development process is through worship. It's what worship is. Worship is a, is a concentration upon Him. And I want you to turn now to Exodus chapter 15 because I want to conclude our, our time together by 
sharing, I hope, if we get the right track. But if we don't get the right track, Honnold's music is always nice anyway. Um, I want to have Tommy play some sections of a piece that Handel wrote that's not quite well known because we're all associating Handel with that famous piece, The Messiah. And in The Messiah, of course, we have the Hallelujah Chorus, uh, but it's a magnificent piece. Handel was a musician who knew his theology, unlike some modern <laughs> musicians today. Um, and he realized that there was a real history behind these things. And he, he wrote moving music that to me uh, connotes, you know, you're not ashamed to walk into God without some sort of little mealy-mouthed ditty. Um, and what he tried to do here was set to music what went on in Exodus 15 here at, at, at the uh, salvation of Israel. Now, uh, if you look at verse 1, it says, Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song to the Lord and said, and the theme of the song is, I will sing to the Lord, for he is exalted. His horse and his rider has he thrown into the sea. Now, sharp students, this, this, on these Thursday nights, we've just got through dealing with the imprecatory nature of Scripture, haven't we? And what if we said justifies the presence of this imprecatory spirit in Scripture, this viciousness that we do detect in the Scriptures, that is so totally misunderstood by the world to the point where even Christians now want to get rid of onward Christian soldiers out of the hymn book. Why is there militancy, an imprecatory thing in the Scriptures? Because it's part of the ripping of good and evil away. The process of sanctification is a war, and it's only when you confront it are you solving the problem everybody's fussing about. Instead of fussing about it, we're solving it. And so the imprecatory nature is, I'm glad that the horse and its rider has he hurled into the sea. Because what had the horse and rider done? Who had they ultimately defined? Who had they said in the spirit of Babel? I will make a name. That's why Yul Brunner played such an excellent Pharaoh. I mean, you can just see him. What he, he used a Persian thing in the script. Cecil DeMille imported actually a Persian thing. What I have written, I have written, and I won't change, that sort of thing. But nevertheless, that's the spirit. That encapsulates it. I am an authority here. I am Pharaoh. I am the state. I am the final authority. And the answer to that is, drown in the sea. But it's not that we can say ha-ha to Pharaoh. What we're seeing here is the holiness of God assaulting the bastions of pride and that arrogant attitude of man. And so the song goes on, and you can see them. I mean, it's all in precatory nature. And it finally ends in verse 18. And in verse 18 it says, The Lord shall reign forever and ever. And you can well imagine that toward the end of his piece, Handel takes that verse and he sets it to the music I want you to hear in just a minute. And then, in verse 20, the text reports something else happened musically. And Miriam the prophetess, Aaron's sister, took the timbrel in her hand, and all the women went out after her with timbrels with dancing. And Miriam answered them. And the idea they were answering is what we would call today antiphonal song, where the men, it says in verse 1, sang this whole thing down through, and then when they were done... In verse 20 and 21, as a response to that, Miriam and the women took up the chant. So the women joined in the imprecatory chorus. And notice what they sing in verse 21. Precisely that theme. Sing unto the Lord, he is highly exalted, the horse and his rider is he hurled into the sea. 
You notice that the horse and his rider being hurled into the sea is explained theologically by the first verse. It's not just that they're rejoicing that the horse and his rider is he thrown into the sea. It's they're rejoicing for that because who is highly exalted as a result of doing that? It is God. God has bared his mighty arm. And it's that that excites them. The horse being cast into the sea is simply a symptom of the exercise of the mighty arm of God. Now, Tommy, would you play that and see if it, we got it in the right track? Follow this in the scriptures because it's all scripture.
you turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 15, there's an interesting historical note about what you just heard. At the end of history, when the wrath of God has been seen in a very public way again, it's interesting that the song that you just heard apparently is sung once more. In verse 3 of chapter 15, And they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God and the song of the Lamb, so it's been combined somehow. And it gives you the text there as it will be rewritten. But somehow the theme that we heard from the old, the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb, will be sung. And it's, it figures very prominently because obviously the chapter of, of 15 is reporting this. And in verse 5, watch as the, as the song progresses. After these things I looked, and the temple of the tabernacle in test, in, uh, of testimony in heaven was opened, and the seven angels who had the seven plagues came out of the temple, clothed in linen, and girded around. And one of the four creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden vials, and it becomes the pouring out of the wrath of God. But you'll notice what precipitates it, and this is the thing we want to see. What did we say was true of this piece? And this is, by the way, why Handel's piece, this piece you heard tonight is called Israel and Egypt, if you... And the only place that you can find the CD that I found locally is Bibelot. Um, two or three people have bought it down. They must think there's a revival going on in Handel circles or something, because I'm sure they haven't sold many CDs of Handel's Israel and Egypt since they opened the store. But whatever, um, this piece is not well known, and it's not well appreciated, I think, because precisely it's very imprecatory. Now, judging from what we've done so far, look in chapter 15. And notice what happens historically after the song is sung. Notice the drama that unfolds beginning at verse 15. Suddenly, as John looks, the temple of the open is suddenly opened and out come the angels with the vials of wrath to pour upon the earth. In other words, the wrath of God is poured out in response to the cry for justice. The cry that now is the time to put evil aside. Now is the time for the vindication of the righteousness of God. And it's done in song. And out of this musical song, this imprecatory appeal, come the wrath of God here in the book of Revelation. The marvelous passage. But it shows you, see the consistency of Scripture, that this music is deliberately imprecatory. And how silly and how, how poor and how immature for the church to dare to say, that it wants to eradicate these militant music pieces from its hymnology. This is blasphemy against the theology of God. It's always done in the name of love, but what a sick, impotent, unbiblical love is mentioned here. How can people say that that's love, not to be imprecatory? To say love is to be separated from the imprecatory is to say that evil shall be perpetuated, that God is to be eternally tolerant of rebellion against him he is to be eternally tolerant of death, cancer, and all kinds of evils and deaths and diseases. How, how, that's love? I'm sorry. So, so when you say this, understand this is the part of the Old Testament that is very difficult even for Christians to go. We've gone through in the last five or six weeks probably the most severe passages of the Scriptures, the most looked down upon. Some people are shamed as Christians to carry around a book with this stuff in it. And they don't understand. It's there. That's the answer. Don't be ashamed of it. That is the answer. Nobody else has an answer. And it's precisely this cry for vindication. Even if it means God rend my heart. 
and make the changes in my life that have to be made. But in so doing, I submit myself to his authority. And in so doing, the kingdom of God is advanced. And what we don't realize, and I just conclude with this, how many times have we prayed the Lord's Prayer? In the middle of that Lord's Prayer, there's a passage and a petition for an imprecatory judgment. And any of you recognize it? Think of the Lord's Prayer a moment. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What? Thy kingdom what? Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Let your will be done. Now how do you suppose that's going to happen without an imprecatory disturbance? So the very Lord's Prayer that everybody glibly cites, unknown to them, is coding and saying and petitioning God for a judgment. Let thy kingdom come and let thy will in heaven be done on earth. Okay, well, I hope this has been a beneficial series for you. We're going to, in the fall, try to get started, catch up. We're going to do David so that we can understand the messianic picture because David is a type of Christ. And then we're going to go on, hopefully, we'll go actually through the entire Old Testament. We're going to start with the days of Solomon, about 1000 B.C., go through a survey of what happened to the nation Israel, the meaning of the exile, and the preparation toward the end of the Old Testament for Christ. Father, we thank you for our times together, and we thank you that you have written a coherent picture of your plan and program of history. We pray that our hearts would be encouraged, that we would remember in the details and the turmoil of each day to take that time necessary to look upon you and look upon what you've said and view your plan and view behind your plan the character that you have demonstrated. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.